This is Talk Ultra. This is episode 12 of the interviews by Talk Ultra. On this week's show, we're actually going to present day in light of the COVID-19 situation. And here we have an interview with Stephen Goldstein, PhD. This is Talk Ultra. It's a great pleasure to welcome Steve Goldstein, PhD, who is joining me to talk all about coronavirus and in particular COVID-19. Firstly, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ian. It's good to be on and hopefully be able to shed some light on this situation that we're all finding ourselves in. Yeah, well, there's a lot of noise out there. And and I first got to experience um, coronavirus in January because I was in Hong Kong. Um, and I, I came in close proximity and managed to get out before, um, it impacted on me directly. Or, although having said that I did go there for a race that got canceled while I was there. And, and of course what's happened in the sort of eight to 10 weeks since then, uh, I mean, has just been phenomenal. And I, you know, I, th- I, I think everybody is struggling to sort of catch up and keep up, but, but importantly, it's knowing what is true out there and knowing what is fact and knowing what is fiction and hence getting you on the show. So firstly, tell us a little bit about you and, and why it is that you're able to talk to us about coronavirus and, and in particular COVID-19. Sure. Thanks, Ian. Um, so currently uh, I'm a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Um, and the lab I'm in now studies virus evolution and various ways that viruses can evolve, often uh, how they evolve in rea- in reaction to the immune response that they face from us. Uh, and we do a little bit of work on coronaviruses, um, but also uh, work on many other types of viruses and pathogens. But before I was here, I was at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I did my doctoral work actually studying Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus or MERS coronavirus. Right. Uh, and its interaction with the immune response um, from the host. And so many people may have heard of MERS coronavirus and remember it. It first kind of popped onto the screen in 2012, uh, mostly in the Middle East, in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, There was one large outbreak in South Korea that was Mm travel-associated. And so I spent, you know, the previous five, six years of my life basically thinking and uh, reading and doing my own experiments, learning about coronaviruses every day. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so a lot of listeners are going to be familiar with terminology like MERS, SARS, uh, swine flu. Uh, why, sure. why is COVID-19 different to all the ones that have gone before? And, and what is the difference between COVID-19 and other coronaviruses? So, We've actually known about uh, coronaviruses as a virus family for decades. We've known about them as viruses that infect humans since the 1960s. And when we discovered the first of two of four um, human coronaviruses that circulate all the time that cause the common cold. Okay. Uh, But for most of those from basically 1965 or so until 2002, Coronaviruses were actually kind of a scientific backwater. They were not major causes of human disease. You know, runny nose, maybe you feel kind of crummy for a few days, yeah. uh, and then you get better. And then in 2002, we had SARS emerge in southern China um, in a similar fashion to how we believe this virus emerged, basically from bats. Uh, and then in these live animal markets in China, it infected other species of animals called civets and raccoon dogs. And we think that the infection went from those animals into people. And then we had a global outbreak that pretty rapidly caused about 8,000 cases and 800 deaths. But we mm-hmm. were able to bring that other con- under control. Uh, and a big reason we were able to do that that's different from this virus is people infected with SARS were contagious really only once they developed symptoms and most contagious at the time when they were most sick. 
Right. So you did not have people walking around the community spreading SARS coronavirus. Yeah. So once we realized what was going on, we were able to identify sick people and isolate them before they were contagious. And just okay. really basically by doing that, you kill the chain of transmission of the virus. Right. Okay. And this is the key point with, with COVID-19 is that, you know, globally now there are hashtags for self-quarantine, self-isolation, um, social distancing. And, and the reason being, and, and, and this became prevalent when I was in Hong Kong in January, was that it was known very, very early on that you could be carrying the virus but not know it. And you would yep. potentially only show any symptoms in in a period of up to 14 days and of course by then it's way too late because you've been mixing with other people you've been going to restaurants you've been going to cinemas whatever it is you do yeah um and and so therefore this is why this COVID-19 is spreading so rapidly worldwide at, at a at a rate that is well I mean it, it, it's terrifying. Um, it and is. I, I, I'm, you know, I don't like to use a word that would would scare people, but I think it, it. I think we're beyond the point of sort of trying to pretend it's anything other than terrifying. Yeah, I agree, and that's what you just said. Is that is the critical difference between this virus and SARS coronavirus and MERS coronavirus before it, and why it's able to spread so well? Is SARS, you could be quite contagious, but only when you were really sick which is why really the biggest SARS outbreaks were within hospitals. We'll have those with this as well, but we didn't have a major SARS transmission in the community once we realized what was going on. And MERS coronavirus, which is can be quite lethal, but is really not very contagious at all. And really the only place we've seen any sustained transmission of MERS coronavirus is in hospitals. This virus, in, the, in terms of when you're transmissible, behaves a lot more like the flu in that you can be contagious before you have symptoms. And I, we all know that you... We don't really basically contain the flu every year. We have a vaccine to kind of dampen things down. Uh, but if people remember the 2009 swine flu pandemic, it basically spread around the world before we were able to do anything about yep. it. We yep. were very lucky that it was a relatively mild virus. We're not as lucky this time. This virus is the SARS coronavirus 2 or the virus that causes COVID-19 is less lethal than SARS or MERS coronaviruses, but it's a lot more lethal than flu and seems similarly contagious and that's why we're in such a difficult position with that with yeah. this now now there's a lot of information out there that i said and and, and you know I've, I've been doing a lot of research I'm, I'm openly putting my hands up here folks you know i i know nothing about viruses I, i've just been reading a lot and i've sifted what i think is the truth and not the truth and and this is why i'm talking to steve and he's here to give you the facts and the figures and what i'm doing from my research is asking specific questions that he can clarify so so one of the important things with covid19 is the r naught um, which is a term that is used on how the virus spreads. Now, I, there's several figures out there, but it seems to be that the art naught figure for COVID-19 is either 2 or 3 or 2.5, let's say. Um, and as I understand it, for, for every person that has the virus, they will pass it on to two or three people, and then it's very, very simple to do the math. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's basically uh, correct. So the R naught, like you said, it's what's what we call the basic reproductive number. And so this is an epidemiological term. And I'm a virologist, but I can speak to it. So not as a kind of this is what I spend my life working on, but definitely with some familiarity is the average number of people that an infected person will transmit it to in a completely susceptible population. So, you know, for example, with um Flu, flu has a given or, or not, um, but the entire population is not susceptible, whether they've, because they've been recently infected on their own and they're immune or they got the vaccine. Um, with SARS coronavirus 2, the entire population is susceptible, except for, you know, the couple hundred thousand people who have already been infected. Um, and it sounds like it's around, yeah, between two and three. I think that's right what you said. The, the one kind of key point about that is that it's an average. Yes. And so you, it, there, it can be a lot of asymmetry between how many people any given infected person will infect. I mean, I think we've seen instances where we've heard this one person got it and gave it to their entire family of seven. Yep. And that can happen. But there are also cases where one person gets it and doesn't give it to anyone in their family. And so these things average out. And with coronaviruses especially, we've seen uh, both with SARS and MERS and 
emerging evidence for that with SARS coronavirus too, what we call these super spreading events where we'll have one person who might infect 10 or 15 or 20 other people. But there are other cases out there who infect uh, none or one. Okay. Uh, and we don't totally understand kind of the dynamics of what determines why that happens. But uh, the average seems to be around between two and three, and we need it below one. And yeah. it's, we need the effective reproductive rate to be brought below one. And okay. that's not what we are now. Okay. Now, um, you sort of hinted there that maybe you don't know the answer to this, but it's interesting that somebody can have it and, and not necessarily pass it on. Is there mm -hmm. any indicator as why that might be? So I can't speak to one definitive reason. There are a few possibilities, and probably all of them are factors. So one possibility probably has just has to do with how much virus you have in your body, what we call the viral load or how much virus that you're shedding. And that differs between people. And that could differ during your course of infection. It's going to start low and go up and then come back down. Some people will just simply never shed as much virus as others, and there could be factors in that related to how much virus you were originally infected with or genetic factors in the host that we don't understand. And it's not necessarily linked to symptoms. I mean, there may be with certain viruses, there's a correlation between if you have more virus in your body, the sicker you like, you're likely to be. Ebola virus is an example of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, with this virus, for me at least, I don't know yet. I know that there are certainly case reports, for example, in children who have uh, very high amounts of virus. Their lungs show pneumonia, and they have no symptoms, no overt symptoms at all. You can see pneumonia on a chest x-ray, but no symptoms at all. Hmm. So it's possible um, that in this case we have people who have a lot of virus in their systems and may not be feeling particularly sick. And so they're out and about. Those people may be more likely to spread the virus to more people than somebody who has less virus in their system or somebody who gets sicker more quickly and is flat on their back and not moving around. Okay. Um, but I, it's hard to say for sure. But these are kind of some of the ways that I think about this. Yeah. And you, you mentioned children there, so it, it's sort of nice to segue into that. But yep. when we look at the people who are most vulnerable, you would you would normally think that children and the elderly but but it seems as though children are i'm not going to use the word safe because that would be reckless but but it seems as though they seem to be suffering less from covid19 than than other people yeah i think that's true that's true uh, early on that was sort of anecdotally reported um but recently there have been some really large studies that have come out uh, i think i saw one of a couple hundred kids yesterday 2000 children from china um the day before, and it's clear that kids become infected. They're not resistant to becoming infected in any way. I think they become infected at the same rate of adults. But on average, the course of disease does seem to be much less severe. Uh, there are kids who do get quite sick, but they seem almost universally to survive the infection. Uh, so that's very different. That doesn't mean that you know, if we have enough people infected, there are going to be children who get very sick. And unfortunately, there may be children who die. Yes. Uh, but the odds are much better than with older adults. That's different from flu, where we see, like, as you suggested, very high susceptibility in very young children and very mm -hmm. high susceptibility in the old and less so among healthy adults. But it is kind of characteristic of coronaviruses. So yeah. we've seen this both with SARS and MERS coronavirus. SARS had a very steep uh, gradient in susceptibility by age. With MERS coronavirus, we've seen virtually no pediatric cases. I'm sure kids are being infected, um, but there just haven't been as many cases of MERS, only a little over 2,000 in, in eight years. Yeah. And so there haven't been that many, and they don't come. if they don't get very sick, they don't come to medical attention. So we don't really understand why kids don't get very sick from coronavirus infections, but we've seen it before. It's not okay. particularly surprising with this virus, but of course... We're very happy that that's that that uh, it's the case. Yeah. Um, I guess it's kind of one of the few silver linings of this situation we can look to is that children are not as susceptible as older people. Now, I guess the one thing that that any listener would be asking themselves is who can get it 
and and what are the implications of getting it um so we're seeing massive infection rates um and they increase the statistics seem to show that every 6 days that there's a big jump uh, and we saw this in Italy which is you know which is in a terrible condition but now we're also seeing other places like San Francisco Norway is is on shutdown Germany France Spain they're all catching up and and the UK we'll come on to the UK in a minute cuz that they, they yeah. did start off with a different system um but one of the key figures that they're using in 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 what's causing the deaths is ARDS which is acute respiratory distress syndrome and so therefore if you're elderly or if you've already got some sort of medical condition you know let's say obesity uh, heart problems or whatever it could be then you are in a very very high risk area but but the, the the normal or what I'm hearing is is that you know if you're if you're fit and you're healthy and, and, you know, age between, I don't know, 20 and 50, you're sort of okay. Is that correct? I think it's fair to say that you're more likely to be okay, but it can still be a serious disease for people who are younger. There is definitely a, a report just came out from the U.S. CDC yesterday looking at the first few hundred cases in the United States. And they had about 20% of hospitalizations were in people aged, I think, 20 to 54 a small, a very small percentage of those required intensive care, um, and they certainly died at a much lower rate than older people. So what I'd say is, if you're a young, fit adult, you have a higher chance than if you're older of just kind of thinking you have a cold or maybe uh, a bad flu. Mm-hmm. You do still have a reasonable chance of needing to be hospitalized. It's higher than with the flu for sure. You are very, very likely to survive the infection, but that doesn't mean that being in the hospital for a couple weeks is... Uh, is going to be good. So, you know, I would, the, the notion out there that you're fine if you're a young, healthy, fit adult is uh, both true and false to some extent. You're certainly better off than if you're older, but it's still something to take quite seriously. You don't want to get this virus if you can avoid it. At the same time, if you do, you have a much better chance of pulling through it okay than if you're older. Okay. Now, the death rate is is becoming higher and the stress on the health systems is particularly difficult because because it is a, a respiratory distress syndrome. There's there's basically not enough, uh, uh, not enough opportunities to treat people in the correct way. And so, for example, in Italy, they, you know, they've had to start imposing wartime triage. And, and for people who yeah. don't know what triage is, is is basically you've got way too many people that you can handle and, and treat. And so you start to treat the people that you think you can help and help them be alive and unfortunately if you're elderly with a heart problem and you've got COVID-19 you're probably going to get no treatment whatsoever is that a fair fair assessment? Yeah I don't know exactly what their criteria are in Italy that they're using you know to decide who's going to get respiratory support um, intensive respiratory support or not but that's the concern is that there's a huge number of cases and there are not enough ventilators or healthcare workers to staff staff the awards to give ventilation to all the people who need it. And um, you potentially having to have to start making some really terrible decisions. I mean, Tony Fauci, the head of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, said this uh, on the news last weekend. Somebody said to him, you know, on think on CNN, what if we don't have enough ventilators? And he said, then we have to start looking at making some really horrible decisions. Yeah. Um, and that's the, the hope with trying to suppress this thing to the point that the healthcare system doesn't become overwhelmed is all about not reaching that point where we have to make those decisions and where people who can be saved die. That's what we want to avoid. There are yeah. unfortunately going to be unavoidable losses during this pandemic, but we want to try to keep the healthcare systems functioning so as many people, so nobody who could be could have been saved has to die from this virus and that's really the key of why these social distancing measures are so important absolutely absolutely so we'll we'll come on to the social distancing in a minute because i think when we talk about the healthcare system being overrun and overwhelmed one of the the things that directly relates to this is a term that a lot of people will be hearing is flattening the curve and 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 basically i'll let you explain but but by flattening the curve, we basically spread out how 
the virus interacts with people and therefore hopefully creates a more steady curve rather than these very severe high spikes. Yeah, exactly. So you basically have two ways to have uh, an epidemic is you have an incredibly rapid rise and you reach the peak and you do start to come down once enough of the population has been infected that the virus basically has nowhere else to go. And that can happen pretty quickly. And, you know, the, the I guess, perceived benefit of that from some quarters would might be that it's over quickly. The problem is your healthcare system becomes completely overwhelmed and you could have a much higher case fatality rate than you might otherwise have needed to have had you had better mitigation measures in place. The other thing that you mentioned, flattening the curve, is essentially we spray, we try to suppress the number of the amount of transmission at any given time. We accept that in the end, it's likely that the same number of people may be infected, but we spread it out over time so there are never as many people at once seeking healthcare. Uh, and that enables the healthcare system to not become overwhelmed and have the capacity to treat effectively uh, the people who do need healthcare at that time. And you know, when we flatten the curve, we might say, um, you know, we expect the same number of people to be infected over time, and that's true if all we have to do is you know non-pharmaceutical interventions. And yeah. for now, that's all we have. But there are, of course, already drug trials going on. Um, there are vaccines that are in development. Those are going to take some time. Um, but, you know, it's possible that we end up at least for a limited number of cases with some kind of pharmaceutical interventions that are possible and end up ending having fewer cases um, overall than we would have if we had just had kind of this rapid peak and decline uh, that people see on the left side of that sort of ubiquitous graph. I think. Okay. So, so one way that we flatten the curve is by uh, isolation, social distancing, distancing, because basically if we're not interacting with other people, we're, we're not spreading, uh, and therefore that, that doesn't have the spikes in how the virus spreads, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And if, if this was a virus where you're only contagious when you're sick, we could just wait for people to get sick and then isolate them. But because you're contagious before you're sick, um, you know, any of us could be theoretically spreading this virus without realizing it. And the only way to deal with that is for all of us to limit our social interactions and deny the virus the opportunity to spread within the community. Okay. So I mentioned earlier on that I would bring the UK into this because the sure. the UK had a different policy. Um, they, they were going to go down the route of herd immunity. Uh, which is basically a little bit like you mentioned, whereas you let the virus just start to penetrate the community. You you create, um, <laughs> well, you, you, you basically just spread it. And, and in theory, it becomes over quicker. But the problem is, is the mortality rate could be very, very high. It, it now seems as though Boris Johnson and the government have sort of started to backtrack a little bit, and 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 as of uh, Friday of this week, we're recording on Thursday. Schools are now going to close in the UK. There's been um, lots of information about don't go to pubs, don't go to restaurants. You know, basically <laughs> social distance. So, yeah. so I don't know whether you've kept up with the UK situation, but but first of all, what is herd immunity and 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 is the UK now sort of more conforming with the rest of the world? Herd immunity is, you described it pretty well, is essentially uh, when you have enough of the population uh, is immune to any virus, that there are not enough susceptible, susceptible people left for the virus to persist in the population. And this is the theory that, not just the theory, but the principle that makes vaccination effective. So, for example, take measles, which is an incredibly contagious virus. Um, we have to achieve a very high level of population immunity to have herd immunity against measles. It's around 95%. But if we have 95% of the population immune, you know, maybe one person could get measles, but they will not interact with enough susceptible people for the virus to go anywhere after that. When you fall below that 95% for measles, then you have um, uh, enough opportunity for the virus to uh, transmit to other people. And so I've seen numbers, people suggest that for a virus like SARS coronavirus 2, the herd immunity level might be around 70% of the population being immune, meaning if we had let 70% of the population get infected, that the virus would die out on its own. Um, I've heard that from some epidemiologists that I follow. I don't personally know if that number is right, but it sounds plausible. Um, as far as the UK, uh, I have followed the 
storm over um, <laughs> their proposed strategy. Yeah. I haven't personally dug into the details. Um, my understanding is that whether that was – my understanding is it's not completely clear if that was actually truly their plan was to just completely do nothing or if it was horribly communicated. But it seems like they're not planning to do that now. I, I did see – that um, one of the best science writers out there, a guy named Ed Young, who writes for The Atlantic, I did write did write something about this that I haven't ha- haven't actually read his piece on it yet, but everything he writes is worth reading. Yeah. So I would recommend to people to look that up. Ed Young, his last name is um, Y O N G, um, and I think that's probably the best place to get some kind of rundown on that. If their plan was to just allow the virus to burn through the population until herd immunity was reached, that uh, plan was insane. And I'm glad that that's not what they're going to do. Um, the fatality rate for this virus in an overwhelmed healthcare system can be very high. We saw that in Wuhan, China, it was somewhere in the range of like three to 5%. And a lot of other places, it's between like 0.7 and 1.4%. Those differences are massive. We all have a responsibility to not let our healthcare systems get to the point where three to four percent of people are dying. That means that there are a huge number of people dying who don't have to die. Okay. We had one of the key figures in the UK who was was advising Boris Johnson, and uh, his name is Sir Patrick. He, he, he said, we think the virus is likely to be one that comes year on year, like a seasonal virus. Communities will become immune to it, and that's going to be an important part of controlling this in the longer term. And and that was in the context of the herd immunity, um, which which seems like such a dangerous way to take things, as you've said, because as we understand it, um, there's no vaccine, there's no there's no way of of knowing what the implications are further down the line. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's possible that without any vaccine, that this virus would become seasonal. We have these you know, four normally circulating human coronaviruses that I mentioned that cause the common cold and they're seasonal, just like flu, they cause, um, or they mostly cause disease in the winter. Um, but they don't really kill anyone. Uh, and, you know, faced with a pandemic right now, we need to do everything we can to try to hold this thing back until we do have um, drugs and vaccines that can take a little bit of the pressure, or in the, the case of we have a good vaccine, a lot of the pressure off of these social distancing measures. But the idea that we're going to solve this just by letting everybody get sick is just crazy and wrong. So um, if the UK was really planning to do that, I'm glad that they've changed course. Um, no country should be doing this. It, I know a lot of us feels like there's nothing we can do, yeah. but there are things we can do. We can't stop this tomorrow, nope. but there are things we can do to make this less less bad for ourselves and for our communities uh, while the people who are working on how to actually solve this problem do it. And they are working at a pace that we have never seen before before with a public health challenge in the history of humanity. Um, and we just we all need to do everything we can to give them the time and space to do that before too many people get hurt. This is Talk Ultra. Okay, so let's talk about the things that we can do um, that is going to make uh, a difference on our own lives, um, other people's lives, and importantly, the the people in the front line who are having to fight this um, in, in what is, I mean, just an extremely and horrific situation. Yes. I mean, the most important things to do are exactly what your public health officials are telling you to do, you know, work from home if you can, or, or hopefully if you've been ordered to, um, unless you have an essential position in which you can't, we're all incredibly, everybody's talking about healthcare workers who are absolute heroes during this situation, but we're also all incredibly grateful to the staff at our local grocery stores who don't have the choice not to go to work. But the rest of us can, you know, shop, uh, you know, don't go out every day for a couple things, like go get what you need for, say, a few days or a week, and then, you know, go back, limit your exposure to the community outside your home, Um, stay home as much as you can. Certainly, when you go out, don't congregate in groups. Um, Don't go to bars and restaurants if they're still open. Most of 
many places in the United States, they're not, or they've gone to takeout or delivery only. Yep. Um, you know, hand hygiene, everybody talks about it and it seems almost kind of trivial, but, it, <laughs> but it's really, but it's really not. No, it's, um, it's so funny how suddenly washing your hands has become this thing. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, it sounds I, crazy. It is. I mean, cause you would think to yourself, well, surely people know how to wash their hands, but obviously there's a lot of people out there who either didn't or don't. <laughs> and so, and so suddenly, you know, how to wash your hands has become a thing. And, I, and I've actually got a list here from the, the CDC. Um, and, and maybe yeah. we, uh, if I go through the list, yeah. and then you can sort of like, you know, come back on it. So clean, sure. clean your hands often. Uh, wash yeah. your hands often with soap and water at least 20 seconds, um, especially after blowing your nose, coughing or sneezing or have been in a public place. If soap and yeah. water are not available, hand sanitize um, with at least 60% alcohol. Avoid yeah. touching surfaces in public places, elevator buttons, door handles, handrails, handshaking with people, etc. Um, use your sleeve or your elbow if sneezing or coughing. Obviously, wash your hands immediately afterwards. Um, avoid touching your face, nose and eyes. Uh, and it's funny because when somebody says don't touch your face, you suddenly realize how much you touch your face in a day. Um, it, it's pretty, of course. yeah, it's pretty horrific when you, when you become self-aware. Um, it is. And I admit that I find it incredibly difficult yeah. not to touch my face. I mean, if you, if you really can avoid doing it, that's great. But this is sort of why I think the hand hygiene point is so critical is we're all going to end up touching our faces. Do everything you can to make sure your hands are clean when you do it because you are going to do it yeah um clean and disinfect your home remove germs practice the routine of cleansing touch surfaces for examples tables doorknobs light switches handles desks toilets faucets sinks and cell phones uh, avoid crowds especially in poorly ventilated places you you risk uh, respiratory viruses like covid19 if in a public place and particularly in a confined space uh, avoid all non-essential traveling including plane trips uh, uh, especially avoiding cruise ships now i think i think now there's so much information out there i think most people are well aware of these points and 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 yes. and in many cases a lot of these opportunities have been taken away from us i mean airline travel is pretty much grinding to a halt um cruise ships yeah. are not sailing restaurants are closing bars are closing um public transport uh, I, I mean i'm in norway at the moment and they're basically saying if you have to get the bus you take a, a row of seats to yourself and you don't sit next to anybody uh, don't travel at peak times try and shift your office hours if you have to work in an office so that instead of going at 8 a.m you go at 10 a.m and you finish at 8 p.m instead of 6 p.m and, and basically try and stagger how people interact um but but the thing is is that we're so much used to freedom we're so much to interacting we're we're yeah. so much to living our lives that suddenly when when this happens, I mean, it can feel like we're watching one of these crazy movies on Netflix that you never think will happen. And suddenly it has become a reality. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's surreal. Even for me, who spent five plus years working on and thinking about coronaviruses every day and everybody in the field says, you know, the next big pandemic could be a coronavirus. But it's still surreal when it actually happens. I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that's difficult to, even though you know it could happen, um, it's difficult to envisioning it really happening on a scale like this un until it actually does. And yeah. it's surreal. There's no way around it. I mean, it's an enormous disruption to all of our lives and our way of life. Um, I think to some extent we're fortunate that we have now the technology that we have that we still can still stay connected to you know our friends and our family who we can't physically see right now i mean yeah. if this happened 30 years ago i gotta imagine it would be even more isolating than it already is um but uh you know we just need to to do these things as difficult as they are um this will end uh it's just it's going to be a difficult period of time um until it does, it will probably wax and wane for a while before it ends, yep. as the 19, 1918 influenza pandemic did. Yep. Um, 
there was a night, there's an interesting article in the New York Times that I think came out yesterday or today, an op-ed by some doctors and public health professionals that talked about the likelihood that we'll have these measures in place for some time. And then uh, as the virus wanes, we may kind of relax them a bit and then increase them again, kind of as the virus waxes and wanes to give the opportunity for some economic activity and some normal life and things like that, when it seems like there might be a little space, bit of space to do that. And we may be in cycles like that until we have a vaccine. Okay. So, so talking of vaccines, um, I, I've read an article today from Australia where they've, uh, they've basically um, done some trials with two, two different um, products that already exist, one's for AIDS and one's for malaria, and they brought them together in, and in testing, it's killed the virus. Now, wow. apparently they're going to move to human trial. Um, yep. Now, folks, don't don't start thinking, okay, we're sorted, because <laughs> Stephen's going to tell you that trials mm. and testing is, is a long way off from something being publicly available. But but what is the likelihood of, of something being found, let's say, within the next four to six weeks? And then if something is found in the next four to six weeks, when could we expect um, something to go global that would start to help the problem? I think three of the big drug drugs or drug combinations that were being tried were um, this HIV combination therapy that I think I just saw a preliminary report um, and at least one trial looked like it didn't work, but they did. One caveat they had was that they gave it to very sick patients who may have been at the point where they were just too sick for any kind of intervention to save them. Uh, at the same time, I don't know... Um, HIV and um, it's coronaviruses are very different, and I'm not sure there are types of drugs that could work against many different types of viruses. I'm not sure those are. Um, but this other drug you mentioned, a malaria drug called chloroquine, uh, which works in the lab and I think is being tried in people. I don't know if there's a formal clinical trial set up for it in the U.S. or if China did something like that, but I'm sure there is somewhere in the world. But I think it's a drug that's already approved and doctors can try it without needing like special FDA approval, I think, on these patients. Um, and then the most promising new drug candidate is a drug called remdesivir that is produced by the pharmaceutical company Gilead. Uh, it's not approved yet and it's, a, it's an experimental drug, but it has shown success against both SARS coronavirus and MERS coronavirus in not just in cells in the lab, but also in animals. And I think it may now have been shown to work um, against SARS coronavirus too. I expect that it would. And I know that China was running a clinical trial with that drug. Uh, so is the US, but the one in China started earlier. And I think it's possible we'll have some data on that relatively soon. I think if that data looks good, um, there's a possibility that uh, Gilead will be asked to increase production of it. I don't, you know, as far as, so let's say we get data in a month that it works, I don't know how long it would take Gilead to make enough of it yeah. to be able to use it, you know, in hospitals around the world on thousands of patients. I, my understanding, I think, is that it has to be given in the hospital via IV. Okay. Um, whereas the malaria drug chloroquine, I think, can be given as a pill. So, you know, if the drug has to be given IV, it's still quite useful, but we're only going to be able to use it on hospitalized patients. It's not going to be, you know, you came to the doctor's office, you're diagnosed with coronavirus, and you take this pill for three days and you recover at home. We hope, I think people will work towards that and we will hopefully have that. If remdesivir is the first drug that comes out that works, that won't be it. Now, if chloroquine works, um, and hopefully also in, say, the next month or so, we'll get some data on that, then I think there's the possibility of using it that way. Um, so I think it's possible within the next, say, month to six weeks, we'll have some drug data. But that doesn't mean we're going to have a drug be deployed widely in four to six weeks. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that we need to address, particularly with this being a podcast for ultra runners, is that... Yeah. Um, is the and I'm a runner myself. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so the implication for runners... and. And I almost feel a little bit guilty asking this question because I, I think in light of what's going on, it's only running. It really is only running. Um, but, but you know, people want to get their fitness fixed. They're worried about races being cancelled. And, of course, for the foreseeable future, every race is cancelled. Um, yeah. 
but but what is the implication for a runner so for example in spain currently you can't go out running you can't go out cycling uh in france you can if you have a certificate that gives you permission within a certain radius of your home here in norway we're on lockdown but we can go running on the trails and and obviously you respect social distancing so so it's going to vary from country to country and and obviously depending on where you're listening to the show you you need to find out what is happening where you live what the rules are because uh, there are curfews there are military intervention there's police intervention but but if you're a runner uh, or a cyclist or somebody who loves the outdoors how does this covid19 impact on on uh, that uh, you know the the runner and maybe the runner's immune system you know as to whether with respect to you know being a runner and your immune system there's any di- any difference in susceptibility you know i don't know that would be great but i I just don't know. Um, it's interesting that there's so much variability across Europe in whether people are allowed to go out and do these things. I know that the San Francisco Bay Area just went on this shelter in home yep. lockdown, but they actually specifically have a carve out for one of the reasons you can leave your house is to go for a hike or a run or a bike ride. Okay. And I think that's smart. I mean, one of the things I concerns me about these prolonged lockdowns is the mental health implications of people being locked up inside for a long period of time. I think it's important to get out and do these things if you're doing it without, you know, breaking these social distancing guidelines that can promote uh, community spread of the virus. So in some cases, in some jurisdictions, maybe they're concerned that people weren't doing that or maybe the population density in some places is so high that it's just not practical to let people out without them getting too close to other people um, to transmit the virus. I'm still running. The trails in Salt Lake City are very popular. I see most people are in by themselves or with one other person, hopefully someone that they live with, um, and you know, keeping a respectful distance uh, from other people. Um, we haven't been put on like a lockdown or anything, but we've been asked to basically stay at home, um, aside from going to the store and yeah. people getting out on the trails and stuff. So, you know, I think it's good to, if you're allowed, like you said, if you're allowed. Um, to get out and keep doing these things. I mean, I think, you know, physical health is connected to mental health. Certainly I can't, I don't know how it may be connected to the the virus in any way, but, um, and it's also, it's just a small bit of your maybe normal routine that we can all hang on to. And these, you know, extraordinary and very restrictive times. Hmm. So, um, I've certainly been still getting out. Um, but all our group, you know, all the local group runs in Salt Lake City are canceled indefinitely and yeah. things like that. So yeah. Now, w- one other point that was raised in terms of anybody who's doing it sport is that maybe now is not the time to be doing hard training uh, where you uh, push yourself to a to a high level because after that your your immune system can be lower um, and. Is that just a myth or is that something that we should take into consideration because we could potentially be more susceptible to the COVID-19 virus? Um, You know, I've seen a couple of commentaries on that. I'm not an expert on like how exercise affects the immune response necessarily. It's not a huge, huge concern of mine. I mean, another concern with respect to certain types of hard training might mean this is not a good time to have to go to the hospital if you can avoid it. Exactly. know, maybe stick to things that are less likely to cause you to have to go to the emergency room. Um, I should probably take that advice myself. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you're trail running, maybe it's a good time to stick to the more buffed out trails and save like the steep technical downhills for when the pandemic is over. Yeah. Um, Uh, both because you don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system and you don't want to be infected in an emergency room. Yeah. And and this is one of the things that, that came alive on, on Twitter the other day when, when I had a friend inform me that um, he was stopped running by the police and told to go home. And, and of course, somebody said, this is crazy because, you know, you, I, I'm sure you can go and buy cigarettes. Running is healthy. But, <laughs> but the point is, is it's exactly as you said. It's, it's not that, they, that running is bad. It's, running is bad if you fall over and then you have to go to the hospital because basically at the moment, 
if you're in there with a broken ankle or a broken leg, you're stopping somebody from treating somebody with this virus. And, 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 and unfortunately, that is the reality at the moment is, is we all have to, to take stock of what we do on a day-to-day basis for the benefit of the people who really, really need the help. Yeah, it's true. So yeah, I think you know, getting out, still getting your exercise, getting, um, doing what you need to do to maintain your fitness, if it's allowed where you live, is great, but a little bit of extra caution to kind of lower the odds that you're going to need any kind of medical attention is a very reasonable thing to do right now. So the final question, and, and of course, it's an absolutely impossible sure. question, um, is how long could this last? So, um, you know, I've seen projections uh, say, I'll take, and it, it, it depends where you are, because different places are at different points in their outbreak. So, yeah. I'll say take um, New York City, which is I'm from the New York City area originally. Um, I've seen some projections that it could peak in the next six weeks or so, but but you know the day it peaks is not the day it's over. So yep. then it could be another few or few day few weeks for it to come down. Um, so that takes us into you know the beginning of summer or something like that yeah. uh, in places that are already being heavily affected. That maybe things are starting to calm down. Uh, there's a danger that, you know, things calm down and you relax the restrictions and then the virus comes back. But we'll get some data uh, on the degree to which that is a concern from China. Wuhan um, and the areas around it are slowly starting to open things back things back up. Yep. And while they certainly had many infections there, you know, there are 11 million, million people in Wuhan city. They did not have 11 million infections, even nope. if they had more than were officially reported. Yep. And so we'll see if the virus comes back when that starts to happen. Um so, you know, this initial wave, uh, wherever you are, maybe could um, be something like a six to eight to 10 week thing, and then it'll go down. Um, I think there's a there's reason to be optimistic that transmission may slow in the warmer months, but I don't think it will stop. The virus is not going to go away in the summer like some people have suggest, suggested, but I think there's reason to think it may slow. Uh, but it could be back in the fall. So, I mean, I think the the worst parts of this are going to be a matter of weeks to a couple of months, hopefully, but for now, but this virus is going to be with us until we have a vaccine, I think. Okay. Okay. Now, there's many points that we've discussed. And, and of course, we've, we've not gone into great depth because this is not a science podcast. This is about, about runners and about right basically things that they need to know and i and i think and i hope we've addressed many of the points but is there anything that you'd like to add Stephen? is there a, a, anything that we've not discussed that you think the listeners should know um i think you know we, i think we've done a really good job covering most of the ground that's important to cover i think i would just you know emphasize emphasize again it kind of seems like the world world is ending right now <laughs> um and uh certain Certainly, our way of ways of life have been disrupted in ways that I think most of us probably never really imagined would happen. But this will end, um, and uh, we just all have to do whatever we can to make it to decrease the amount of pain that's involved in the path to getting there as possible. But mm. I, I do think I guess I'd guess I'd say I do think we will have a vaccine. I don't think we touched on that. I do think we will have a vaccine. Uh, I think it will probably be a pretty good vaccine. I don't know if it'll be a vaccine that you take, that you get once and then you're good for the rest of your life or if you need boosters for it. But I do think we'll have a vaccine. It won't be this year. Um, I think it's possible that by next fall, uh, we could have a vaccine if things go well. Um, So that's some bit of optimism that I guess people can look forward to. Um, (laughs) I can hear the listeners now going, what, a year away? (laughs) keep an eye on yeah yeah i mean it's it's a long it's a long way away um but you know we don't have an don't have an hiv vaccine and i and i don't think that's really in sight but i think for a virus like this we will be able to develop a vaccine um and it's going to be disruptive for a while but it will end it will not be be as even before then it will not be as bad as it is at its peak the whole time Mm. um i think that a lot governments are starting to get their acts together to try to not just uh, deal with the virus, but to hopefully lessen the ec- the economic blow that's yeah. associated with this. Yeah. Um, and we've all just kind of 
got to keep doing what we can to look out for our families and the community um, by doing what's being asked of us to the best of our abilities and um, just try to, you know, hang in there. It seems trivial, but um, yeah, there's not a lot else we can do. It's no. just, you know, do what we're being asked to do, hang in there, uh, uh, and this will not last forever. Okay. We will beat this virus. It's just going to take some time. So you mentioned the economic blow there, and, and, and I think it is worth yeah. just mentioning because I think th there is nobody who is not going to be impacted by COVID-19 financially. Yeah. Um, my my day-to-day -day job is out of the window at the moment because I'm a photographer right. for trail running and, and I work around the world, so I can't travel. The races are being cancelled. So, you know, yeah. I'm in for a, a pretty shit time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Restaurants are in for a shit time. Hotels are in for a shit time. Airlines are in for a shit I mean, everybody, apart from nurses and doctors, but, but they're in for a shit time because they're going to be completely overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is... There is no, there is no happiness here, um, and I'm not looking to you for an answer. I'm just wondering if you can give a perspective. Is that what? What do you think the implications will be worldwide? Um, I mean, we've seen packages coming in from different presidents and, and different um, governments to to offer funding to help people. You know, France have I think have done something fantastic in that they've stopped all utility bill payments. They've stopped mortgage and rent payments, um, which yeah. is which is huge. I mean, if you if you think you know if if I know I've got friends here in, in Norway. They're, they both work in gyms. They're personal trainers and they work in yeah. the same gym. The gym is closed. They can't teach anybody. They have no income. Yeah. And and I mean, yeah. that is just one isolated incident that is being relayed across the world. I mean, the economic impact is is going to be huge and, and, and devastating. Yeah, it is going to be huge and devastating. Um, I mean, I'm not an economist, but we obviously need our governments to enact extraordinary measures to try to soften the blow of this. So, you know, for two reasons. One is people need to be able, some, to, be able to live safely and eat. Um, and we also need people to abide by the social distancing guidelines. And, you know, if you want people to not try to get, get, a, get around them and find ways to you know, make money and participate in the economy. If you want people to basically sit it out, then and people need to be in the assistance that enables them to do that. Uh, so it's really encouraging to see, you know, governments around the world start to do that. I mean, even here in the U.S. where we have a government that in the best of times often moves very slowly to do things that are obviously necessary. We're starting to see the government move with some speed um, in proposing and hopefully passing soon some pretty extraordinary measures that we've never seen before. Uh, so I hope that that continues to happen, but the economic blow is going to be enormous no matter what. And that's going to take some time to recover from even after the worst of this pandemic is over. Yep. Um, and uh, it's hard to say anything good about that, except that I'm glad that we're starting to see governments step up and try to mitigate it to the extent that they can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Stephen, it's been uh, a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, I wish it could be in more enlightening um, times. Yes. Um, I think it's important to get something like this out there where, where people can have some data, some facts, some truth, um, know what they're dealing with. And, and if nothing else, if, 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 if you don't like what you're hearing, please just stay at home. Don't, you know, don't go out for a run with other people, social yeah. distance. And, and, and if we all do that, then hopefully we'll be over this a lot quicker than if we ignore it. And I think that's the simple message from this podcast. Yeah, I agree. This is Talk Ultra.